from there. Uh, <laughs> it took me a little while to spit that out, but uh, it could happen. And I think that probably if Trump pushes too hard against them to try to show the fraud, uh, that might be the thing that precipitates his death. It wouldn't surprise me a bit because it seems that he would be the one uh, there in the in the Bible that we would lose our king or he'd be killed and cut off in the morning. So I don't know. Maybe that could be Biden, but I, uh, they don't. Well, the Republicans, I suppose, would have some reason to kill Biden, but they don't think the same way that the Democrats do. They're just straight-out-and-out communists now. And we always fought communism. Remember the Cold War? And how we didn't want to be taken over by communism, and yet we are being. It's being taught, has been taught to our children now for decades and decades in school. They disguised it, but that's what they were teaching. And now a great number of our people have accepted it, socialism and communism and uh, that kind of thing. So, it's okay. I'm not worried about it. I'm not pulling for either party. I didn't vote for either party, won't vote for one. I vote for Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, to come and rule the earth. And that's the bottom line. And I think he'll be here pretty soon. So, uh, the way things are going, the, the country is coming apart and ready to be full of famine and pestilence, and then the sword, and then taken captive, just like the scriptures say over and over and over again. So we're on the path to that now. It's The prophecies are being fulfilled. It's not in the future anymore. It's right here today and tomorrow, and it will get worse and worse and worse if you think it's going to get better you better recalculate because it's going to get worse and worse until uh, all those prophecies have been fulfilled completely. And it's not a pretty picture. I am thankful that we understand that. I'm thankful that we're here and God is going to bring others uh, for the purposes of his work. So that's becoming more and more imminent as well as far as the timing of it and I think quite soon. So... Uh, we need to be where we are doing what we're doing and ratcheting it up on a spiritual level as much as we possibly can. And that's why I'm going through the elements or the conditions of the new covenant is so that we might be reminded of the attitudes we should have toward God, toward man, and what his conditions are for salvation, because the new covenant is an offering of eternal life and salvation, is what it is. And here he goes through the things that he's looking for in those whom he will grant eternal life. So if we focus on what we're supposed to be right now, as opposed to what's... I mean, we're supposed to be watching what's going on in the world and praying always... Yes, we're to be keeping an eye on it, but that isn't our focus. God is our focus. Uh, Trump is not my focus. Biden's not my focus. None of them are. God is our focus. And there is no man who can save this nation. When God himself says, don't even pray for them, they will not repent, 
we're wasting our time and our energy and God's time if we worry and fret over what's happening. We don't need to worry and fret. The just shall live by faith, trusting in God that he will take care of us. That is our position. That's our posture. That's what we are to be. Now, I spent almost a sermon on blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize that they are in desperate need of more of God's spirit and don't have nearly enough of it. And then last week on those that mourn, Jesus himself at that time being a man of sorrows because of what he saw going on in society, and we are to mourn over our own condition and over the condition of the world to do something about it. Now, that doesn't mean we need to go around all the time uh, with a little bitty tear running down. Uh, That's not what he's saying, but we need to be very, very aware of righteousness and the evil that is in the world and sigh and cry because of the conditions we see around us which do affect us to one degree or another. And we want peace and safety and security that God's kingdom will provide. So we pray, first of all, thy kingdom come in the sample prayer that Christ gave. And here is where our focus should be. Now, let's go to verse 5 today. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we are meek, we will inherit the earth. God is our Father in heaven, and He owns the universe, and He owns the earth. He, through Christ, created it, and produced it, and created us to walk upon it. So it's His. Everything here is His. And He has promised it to you and me. Let's uh, look at that for a moment back in in, uh, Revelation 5, in verse 10. Revelation 5. He says up in 9 that here are the 144,000 who sang the new song, and it says only the 144,000 could sing it, that he is the one who's worthy because he has redeemed us from death. Verse 10, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So this is speaking of the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David up in verse 5, Christ himself. And he has made us to be kings and priests. It's not something we can presumptuously take. It's not something we can declare. And we can't transform ourselves into kings and priests living eternally and immortally. He's made us, is making us in the process at the moment. But this is a fulfilled prophecy as it's written. He's the one that has made us that, or will have made us that when it happens. And he considers us kings and priests now. Uh, Even in human royalty, when you're a prince or a princess, they look at you as a king or queen to be. 
and they put you through rigorous training to train you to comport yourself as a king should or as a queen should. Rarely, well, so far never, has anyone lived up to all that training, but they try to get us to be what we ought to be if we're physically in that position. Well, here we are, having been brought to princeship or princesship, if you will, and told that we are to be kings and priests, and he will make us that. Now, that's a positive statement. Let's understand that. I want to focus on that. He makes us that. It is his intent that we become that. And we have to agree with the program and get on with it and joyfully do what he wants done. Now, one of the fruits of his spirit is joy, and yet at the same time, he tells us to mourn. So how do you do this? As a student in Ambassador College, I was a happy sort, a positive sort. I've never had much of a negative approach to things in life. I've always been pretty upbeat and positive. Uh, and I laughed a lot and joked with my classmates and this and that. But I had one of the evangelists, uh, John Hill, David John Hill, who is arguably the best speaker we ever had. He could just have you crying, and then he could have you rolling in the aisles. Uh, Ted Armstrong was somewhat the same way. And uh, it was just a treat when you saw them on the schedule. Yeah, I want to be there, was the kind of thing. There were a few names you'd see on the schedule and say, Oh, brother, do I need to stay home and fast? <laughs> I could sleep a little better. Uh, but... That's the way it was among humans. But John Hill saw how seriously I took things in spite of the fact that I laughed and joked a lot and so on. Uh, so one day he said, you just need to take yourself so seriously. So that night he took me out to Shakey's Pizza and we ate pizza and drank beer most of the evening. And he told jokes most of the evening because he was trying to show me that side of it. Well, I kind of knew it already, but I didn't want to appear too much that way to all the faculty, if you know what I mean. So, But I always have taken things seriously, and especially these last 24 years since this message started coming through. And uh, no, I don't laugh and joke as much as I used to. There's a more serious side uh, where my focus is, and yet, well, maybe I'm becoming a stick in the mud. I don't know. But uh, I don't intend it that way. It's just that we need a balance in these things between mourning for the way things are and mourning for the way we are, and yet being at the same time upbeat and positive about what God is working through us. So it's okay for us to laugh and kid each other and joke and so on in a in a good and bantering and uh way, as long as it's positive and not picking at each other in a negative sense. That's not humor. That's picking. Uh, but if it's done in a friendly manner, uh, it's okay. It's like the other day with Shirley here. She's been having some difficulties and sleeping. 
So we were trying to give her some natural things to help her sleep and relax. And, well, they're not doing any good. And I says, well, all right, we've tried that. I says, I do have another solution. We'll just whop you alongside the head with a tuba for And uh, that'll put you to sleep. I said, now, the other the problem with this is that there's a side effect. You wake up with a sore head and a headache. Well, she took, I wasn't threatening at all. <laughs> she knew it was a joke, totally. But it kind of lightened us both up, and whoever else might have heard it. Uh, and that kind of joking, obviously, I wasn't picking at her. Obviously, I wasn't threatening that. And maybe it's my own bizarre sense of humor, but nonetheless, I've found that over the many decades, really, of visiting sick people and trying to comfort them and help them, that it's truly, it's really true when the proverb says that uh, laughter does good like a medicine. And a merry heart, I think it puts in the same context. So I've found that if you can... Go into somebody who's feeling really bad, and you can kind of kid around and joke with them a little bit and get them to laugh, they feel a little better. Uh, as long as they understand it's not mean and not trying to put them down and depress them further, you have to be careful how you do things, but uh, somewhere in there is the balance, and it's hard for us all to find as to when to be serious and when to be humorous and what remarks are appropriate and what are not, uh, I think of all the things that a human being goes through, the attitudes, the things we say, uh, humor is maybe the hardest one of them to get right. <laughs> it's easy to go too far this way or that way, and sometimes we can offend, and sometimes we can carry it to where it's inappropriate. Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of bad jokes, and there's a few good jokes, you know. And and it's a, a very difficult thing for people to get humor right. It's it's just it's a fine line, uh, and humor is based on twists that you weren't expecting, basically. Uh, you're expecting somebody to start out this way, and then they say something that goes that way. And and that can be funny because it's not what you're expecting, uh, you know. If you if they'd have said what you they expected you to say, that wouldn't have been funny at all. It's it's the direction. And I don't have to get into all of that a whole lot, but uh, he does say that we're to have joy. That's one of the main fruits of his spirit. And you have to combine that with this morning and poor in spirit. So we take things totally seriously, and we talk about serious things. But we also enjoy life and enjoy humor and enjoy laughter. There's a lot about laughter in the Bible. A scoffing type or a that type of laughter isn't good. But that which can uplift and relax us a bit, is good. So God created laughter, and he laughs. I think sometimes he looks at us, and that's about all he can do, <laughs> his laugh. <laughs> uh, but 
finding that balance is difficult. But here he tells us that he will make us kings and priests. That's his intent and that's his purpose. And he's working toward it. So we don't need to doubt him. You know, you can be meek and poor in spirit and you can mourn. Uh, and yet he tells us, and I quoted this one three or four or five weeks ago, where there in Hebrews he says that we are to take hold and that we are to come boldly before the throne of grace. Well, now, how do you reconcile that? Okay, realize that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you need a whole lot more of his spirit than you have. Mourn for your condition, but then go to him boldly to receive what you know you need. So the thing is recognition of our spiritual poverty and mourning over our need, but we can't fix that, you see. We can't fix that. There are people who are physically in poverty because of lack of training or mental or emotional issues or whatever it might be, and they see no way out of that. And in many cases, there is no way out. Like Christ said, the poor will all be always be with you or among you. There are people who are simply not gifted or qualified or trained to do what's needed to even feed their faces hardly. So they need our help, our compassion, our pity, our love, because there'll always be some in that category. But spiritually, we're all there. None of us can be spiritually what we need to be on our own. It isn't in man to do that. So we need to recognize our poverty and be in a mournful attitude, but then we have something that those people who are unqualified physically in the world don't have. We have a source to go to to receive that training and that help and that strength and the ability and have some of it given to us. God gives His Spirit without limit. Now, He will not give us what we are not prepared to deal with properly. But there's no limit on what He will give us if we do not limit ourselves. See, the Pharisees limited themselves. They were not poor in spirit. They did not mourn over their spiritual condition. They were proud of it. They thought they were hunky-dory. They were the cream of the crust, or cream of the, the crud. No, it wasn't the crud. It was, they, they thought they were top-notch. So they didn't go to God to ask for his spirit and for help. They thought they had everything they needed. And they could go to God and say, look at me, I'm so wonderful. You're going to make me, you're going to bless me because you just can't help yourself, I'm so good. That was their attitude. I don't think that's, I don't see that in any of us really. Maybe in part, sometimes we are that way. 
to some degree because our vanity and our ego can get stirred up or whatever. But I think most of us recognize that there's a long distance and a great gulf between us and God. There really is. So, we go to him who can do something about it. That's the beauty of what he's offered us. If you will have this attitude and realize (coughs) what it is that you lack and come to me boldly, not sniveling, not cowardly, not in a fetal position, oh, pull me, but realize realistically what your needs are and then go to the one that has the answers. And boldly so. God, I recognize I am a louse. Help me. Give me your spirit. Help me control my mind, my attitudes, my voice, my hands, my feet. I need your help. So whining and crying about it doesn't do any good. I don't like whiners, do you? I want a cookie. I don't want to give you a cookie. You come to me like that. Now, if you come say, I'm kind of hungry and it's two hours to lunch. May I have a cookie, please? I'm much more inclined to answer that. You know what I mean? So's God. If we come boldly, that's what he tells us to do. Be bold about it. Admit our faults. And ask for help. Positively, in faith. Just saying, help me, help me, doesn't do a bit of good. You've got to have faith that you're going to get an answer. So whining is not the answer. Now, the next category here, and I'm sort of covering it already, really, is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He is promising us rulership over the earth with him, If we are meek. Let's go to Numbers 12. Well, before we do that, let's go back to Revelation 3. Because we just read what Christ says. And while we're turning there, let's define the term meek. What does that mean? It is only a couple letters from weak. Sounds the same. W-E-A-K is weak. Meek is M-E-E-K. Now, God does not want us to be weak by any means. He urges us to be strong, not weak. And that's one of the four things he tells us here at the end time who are asked to do his work is to be strong, not weak. So meek and weak are not synonyms whatsoever. Not at all. Meek means afflicted, humble, lowly, needy, poor, gentle, and mild. Those are synonyms for meekness. Uh, I got those out of the Bible, not out of the dictionary, but they all pretty well fit, and there's more that can go with it. So, that's as opposed to vain, full of self, clamorous, loud, pushy, 
presumptuous. It's the other way. Now, that means we can be meek, recognizing our spiritual poverty, because it does say that's one of the things here, poor or needy. Meekness before God is recognizing our need, being needy to Him. Now, what does He tell us here? The end-time church, this is where we are right now. We, we know this very well in Revelation 3. Verse 14, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen. That's the so be it. That's Christ. The faithful and true witness. Now, he will witness before God, the Father, you and me. And he is a faithful and a true witness. He will not lie. He will not uh, give false witness to the Father about us. He'll tell him the truth, whatever it is, good or bad. He is a faithful and true witness of what really is. We are not even a true and faithful witness of what we are. We really aren't. We deceive ourselves. We kid ourselves. We think we're this when we're that, which is hypocrisy. So, we're not true and faithful witnesses about each other or even ourselves. But... Emmanuel knows what we are, and he's going to be faithful and true in his witness. And he says the beginning of the creation of God. So he sent him here to be a human and to live a perfect life, which he did. He accomplished it. And then he is the firstborn of many brethren. So he is the beginning of the creation of eternal, immortal beings. Because believe it or not, Christ was human. And he could die and did die. And he was resurrected and glorified. So he is the beginning of that. He showed the way. He set the pace, set the standard. Now, he tells us, and he's talking to all of us here at the end, who were spewed out, and we were among them. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were one or the other. But because you're just lukewarm, not cold or hot, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I don't like to drink things that are tepid, that are lukewarm. I want my coffee hot. And I want my beer cold. I don't like warm beer and I don't like warm coffee. Well, maybe iced coffee is okay, but not warm coffee. And Christ is the same way. He's, he doesn't like things that are just, eh. He wants us to be one way or the other. It's a lot easier to judge, isn't it? Do you want somebody that's asked about you, they say, what do you think about so-and-so? Mm, yeah. That's not a real good answer, is it? Would you want to hear that? Be a fly on the wall? Eh. That's enough said. Wouldn't it be nicer if they said, there's somebody that's full of zeal and energy and love and kindness and, boy, 
If they say they'll be somewhere, they'll do something, they'll do it. They're not going to fool around and make excuses. They won't say, well, I'll try to do that. When somebody says, I'll try to do something, I know good and well it's not going to get done. When they say, I'll do that, then I expect it'll probably happen. But try doesn't generally get it. That's an excuse built into the into the sentence. I'll try. That implies I ain't going to try very hard. <laughs> That's what it implies. And when somebody says, I give you my word, I will be there. All right, I'm going to be expecting it. And generally it happens when they're that way. Because their yes is yes and their no is no, not, eh, maybe. Don't you get frustrated with that? I know every once in a while Marla would say, what do you want for dinner? Eh, don't matter. That's frustrating to the cook. She's having trouble already obviously deciding what she ought to make. And if you won't give her any guidance whatsoever, won't put forth enough thought or effort to say, you know, I feel kind of like such and such, she'd be much happier. You say, yeah, this is what I want. I want Mexican food tonight. Oh, okay, I'll go make you some. But if I'd say, I don't matter, whatever. Maybe the cook then is just inclined to give you whatever. <laughs> and that what, whatever might not be as good as you kind of wished it would have been. Well, he wants his hot or cold. I can either dump you or I can receive you and love you. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, that's exactly what the Pharisees said. So when we think we're A-OK, we're Pharisee. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, what's he telling us there in Matthew 5? Here's what he says I want you to do. I want you to uh, be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek. First three things he says are there to tone down our vanity and our ego and our defensiveness and justifications and all those things that we tend to be as humans. you got to get that junk out of the way before you're useful to God. Have you ever trained people on a job? People come into that job with different attitudes, don't they? Some people say, well, I don't know too much about this, but I'm willing to listen and just train me to however you want things done. You show me how you want done and I'll do it just that way. Now there's the kind of employee you'd like to hire. And then you have those that come in and say, yeah, I already know all about this. I know how to do this. You don't have to tell me. I know how to do it. I'll do it my way. Tough to work with. Because they will do it their way. And they won't accomplish what you want done the way you want it done. Now, God's the same way. 
If you come in meek and humble, ready to be taught, willing to learn, then he's willing to teach you. But if you think you know it all, you're not teachable. Your mind is not receptive to learning anything. I used to work with my brother sometimes. And there was only one way. He was into carpentry and building and so on. There was only one way to build anything, and that was his way. And, oh, what a nightmare. We're building, in one case, my house. He was helping me. And I'd say, well, I'd like to have it this way. I'm going to live in it. It's mine. I'm paying for it. I'd like to have it this way. No, we got to do it right. My way was right. I wanted it this big and shaped like this. But it wasn't right to him. It had to be that way. And he'd finally wind up throwing chairs down the stairs or whatever if he didn't get to do it his way. That didn't lead to good things. And I used to tell him, this is my house. This is the way I want my house built. Now, if we go build you a house, I'll do it the way you want it, because it's your house. And I don't care how you want it. I'll do it how you want it. Okay? No, I wasn't okay. He wasn't going to build a house. Bottom line, he wanted a house, he wanted to build his own house, and he wanted an underground house, and he had all kinds of ideas how he wanted to do it. And he finally found a piece of ground up in Victorville, Idaho, and he was going to build his underground house. And he started gathering up junk uh, here and there to build that house with. He had that land for at least 10 years, I think, and never even started excavating because he was fearful. He hadn't had much success in life, and he was afraid of success. He was afraid of accomplishing what it was he really wanted to do. So he'd help somebody else do something, and then he didn't have to take responsibility if it failed. So he never did anything with the land. Talked about it a lot, never did a thing. And then he finally sold it. Somebody gave him gold coins for it. And within six months to a year, I think six months probably, it was all gone. Just gone. He went to Vegas to visit the church down there. And these people had a little new little baby. Gold then was worth eight nine hundred dollars an ounce, and uh, he just handed one to the parents and says, "Put this in her college fund." I doubt if it's in her college fund today, but maybe that was more of the benevolent ways, more benevolent ways that he actually did something for somebody there. So I won't knock that, but the bottom line is. His money was gone, and his land was gone in a very short while. We need to do things God's way. And to be poor in spirit, and meek, and humble about it, then we can be taught, and we can learn, and we can do it His way, because His way is best. 
You know that, and I know that. We see how the universe and the world was put together. And we see how flowers were made, and deer were made, and grass, and sky, and rain, and childbirth, and the thousands and thousands of wonderful things that God made on this earth. And then we look at some of this and say, well, I want that, and I want that, and God said, no, you can't do this, and you can't do that. You can do this, and this will make you happy. But we focus on something else that we think will make us happy, and so we do that instead. And then our happiness fades away because that wasn't the thing that produces happiness. It isn't. But try convincing you and me of that. And try to get us to have faith and trust God that if we do it His way, everything will turn out fine. But what do we do? Instead, we worry and we fret about how things are going to not turn out right and how we're, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and worry about everything there is to worry about and things that doesn't need to be worried about. Why? Because we don't have faith. If we trusted God that everything would turn out right if we just obey Him, we don't need to fret and worry. You know, we've got people here on this property that are still trying to get me in jail or whatever they can do to me to get me out of here. I don't fret about it. I don't lose sleep over it. God has told me in His Word what He's going to do with those people. He said it. He's made the judgment already. i got nothing to worry about as far as they're concerned. Now, I may have something to worry about as far as I'm concerned. Am I obeying God the way I need to be? Is my attitude right? Am I doing what I should do? Those things I need to be concerned about. But things that God has said He will do, and I've talked to Him about it and said, You've told me what you're going to do, and you'll show us what we need to do. So why worry? I don't worry about the lawsuits. I try to do what I can to to mitigate it or keep the cost down or whatever because of lawyer expenses, but, but I don't sit and fret and worry about it. What good does it do? What does worrying about your enemies do for you? It frustrates you, it depresses you, it puts you in a negative attitude, it makes you mad at the world and mad at them. If you're not careful, it could make you mad at God, because you've got problems. Nah. He tells us, don't worry about it. Leave it in His hands. But we don't believe it. So we think we've got to worry. Now, when I'm anointed, I'm sick, I get anointed. Well, that formally puts it in God's hands. I don't have to be anointed for the same thing 10 or 15 times. I can remember back, I'm thinking of a particular congregation where there were <clears throat> primarily four or five elderly ladies Every one of them would come up every Sabbath to get anointed. 
essentially for the same thing. And I didn't want to be unkind, but I finally had to explain to them gently that we put that in God's hands. Now, you need to leave it in God's hands. It's there. He knows it's there. We put it there. He sees it. He'll do what he wants to do about it when he gets ready to do what he's going to do about it. So I tell him, your will, not mine, be done. Sometimes I get this heart fibrillation. And it'll go through my mind, well, maybe this one's it. (laughs) Maybe I'll cork off here. Okay. I don't want to die. And I don't want to cork off right here. But I have told myself, this has been put in God's hands. He knows what's going on. If he wants me to live, I live. If he wants me to die, there's not a thing I can do about it. It's going to happen. (laughs) You know? My life is in his hands. I belong to him. I'm his slave. I'm his servant. I'm his son. I'm his friend. I'm Christ's younger brother. You know, it goes on and on, the things that we are to God. He counts my hair so he knows when my heartbeat's not right. Now, there have been times that I've had a serious time, so I've been anointed for it more than once, but not every week and not every six months, just when it seems appropriate uh, to ask God about it formally again. Uh, But it doesn't need to be constant and daily. Faith is trust that God will do what is best for us in his time and way. The just shall live by faith, not worry. We should not worry. If we worry, and the preacher says don't worry, then we worry about worrying. (laughs) You know, (laughs) sometimes you hate to tell people what they ought not do because then they're going to get all distressed about that on top of it. What good does that do? So you have to be careful and be gentle and and so on. But we realize our lacks. And then we put it in his hand. Now, I ask him not for physical healing very often. I really don't. But I ask him daily for wisdom and understanding and love and patience and mercy The fruit of His Spirit is what I need the most. If I live another 40 years and don't have mercy and love and kindness and joy in the fruit of His Spirit, another 40 years won't do me a bit of good. So I ask for the things that I really need. Obedience. Those are the things that I really need. Now, if I get those, then it won't matter whether I live another day or another 40 years because I have what I need. Because the kingdom of God is all that matters. We're all going to die physically. This doesn't matter one whit in the long run. It matters to us to some degree because God made us not wanting to die. 
To live is the deepest, strongest desire he put within us. That's the, that's the deepest one. And with good reason. Because he wants us to be strong and live as long as we can on this earth. <coughs> but deep inside us, he wants us to want to live eternally and not die. So he put that, he could have, he could have arranged us any way he wanted to, and did. But it could have been arranged differently, where our greatest desire was whatever. But the deepest one is to live, because living forever is the ultimate goal he has for us. So he put a very deep desire to live. In whatever society or culture there is around the world, even people who eat worms and chop down trees with a stick and have almost nothing and barely the intelligence to stay alive have some idea of an afterlife. Whether they're worshiping sticks and stones or Satan or God or whatever they might be worshiping, they do believe that there's a life after this one. God put that innately within us. It doesn't matter how dumb you are or how smart you are, you have that built in. That there's got to be something more than what we have. He put it there. So we need to respond to that and do those things which he says will cause us to live forever. We can't do it for ourselves, but if we do our part, he says, hey, I'm here. I'll take care of the rest. I got you covered. I got your back. This is going to happen. I've made you kings and priests. Let's get on with it. So our resistance is the problem. And part of it, and what caused the church to be all broken apart is because we came to think that since we're part of Worldwide Church of God, we're the ones. We're the ones that are important. We're exclusive. And we got proud and vain about our spiritual standing before God. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. And that's what he's warning about here. The very thing that we were and still tend to be. Now, if you realize you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, that's a spiritual recognition, is that you don't spiritually have what you need. And that fits perfectly with poor in spirit, mourning, and meek, is that we realize we have need. Pharisees couldn't get it at all, and we weren't getting it very well either. So, now, what are you going to do? Are you going to become meek and humble and poor in spirit and then come to me for help? That's what he's trying to get out of us. That's all this is about. That's all it's about. I counsel you to buy of me. Come boldly before me. To buy gold tried in the fire. What is gold tried in the fire? It's pure. He wants us to be pure, to be cleansed, 
spiritually pure, pure, uh, pure. And, white, and white raiment, that equates to righteousness. This is all about spirituality. It has nothing to do with the physical. Unspotted by the world. Clean clothes, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. See, we couldn't see before. We were blind to our own wretchedness and poverty in spirit. And how much we really lacked. And ultimately, that's really what Job's problem was, wasn't it? He was keeping the commandments, and he had a good opinion of himself because he knew he was keeping the commandments. What he didn't realize was the great variance between him and God. That he lacked so much. He was a human. He was a successful human. He had fine kids and he had lots of herds and flocks. He had lots of money. He had fine home. He had a lot of nice things. And he obeyed. And he knew he obeyed. But he got a bit proud of it. So God showed him over a period of time there what was the vast difference? I'm the one that made the fish. I'm the one that made the animals. I'm the one that created the earth. I'm the one that did all these things. You, can you do all this, Job? Oh, now I see. I may be obedient, but I'm not God. <laughs> and I'm a long ways from it. Now, we need to be obedient, and in that obedience, recognize our spiritual poverty compared to God's riches and spiritual richness. There's no comparison between us and God. So, if we recognize that, what do we do then? Mope, curl up in a fetal position, and say, oh, woe is me, I guess I'll eat worms and die. No, not at all. Be strong, be of good courage, walk in faith, trust God to transform you. He says those that overcome or are transformed, made different, will I grant to sit with me in my kingdom. It's that simple. So here he tells us when we realize, we anoint our eyes and wake up, to the reality of our spiritual condition and realize that the works of the flesh are us by nature. That's us by nature, the works of the flesh. And we realize that. Then what do we do about it? There's the key. Buy of me. What did he tell those ten virgins that were asleep? Get oil. Come to those who have it and get it. you got to have it. Gold tried in the fire that you may be rich instead of spiritual poverty. Become rich spiritually with a bank account in heaven of holiness, righteousness, and those things that God wants us to have. 
Now, notice verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Grasp from that that even though we may have become Laodicean and didn't recognize our spiritual poverty and mourn over it and become meek, God loves us anyway. He's telling us that he rebuked us and chastened us by spewing us out and removing his blessings and turning his face from us because he couldn't stand to look at the lukewarmness that we showed. But he said, I love you. I chasten every son whom I love. So, if we've been Laodiceans, God loves us. And if God loves us, what more do we need? Go to Him, get what you need to be what you ought to be. Don't be weak. Don't be insipid. Don't be lukewarm. Now, lukewarm means full of zeal and energy. I mean, being hot means full of zeal and energy. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So we are to be strong and courageous and faithful and obedient and seize salvation. Remember Jacob? When Christ came to him, he latched on and he would not turn loose. He hung on with all his might, with zeal and energy, all night long. Now, Christ could have broken away from him at any time. But he was testing Jacob to see if he would remain that way all night long. And he did. He passed that test. Then when morning came, Christ said, that's enough of this. I, I got you figured out. You're zealous. You're energetic. You came boldly to me and you're not turning loose. Okay, I'm convinced. Then he just touched his thigh and broke his hip, and Jacob turned loose. <laughs> and he limped, apparently, the rest of his life, from what Jewish historians tell us. Well, that limp was there for a reason. It reminded Jacob, every step he took, that he needed to hang on to God and God's way. Now, things happen to us, and God tests us. And he wants to know if we're going to hang on to him with zeal and energy and power or if we're just going to curl up in our lukewarmness and say, I'm, I'm nice and warm. I'll be okay. Take me as I am. Protestants sing songs about that. Take me as I am. He doesn't want you as you am. <laughs> he wants you full of zeal and energy. Courage, power, faith, and to seize strongly, come boldly before the throne of grace. Oh, God, help me. Baloney! You don't want to hear that. He wants to hear, Father in heaven, I come before you, and I am a wretch. I'm not what I ought to be at all. I have this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, and that problem. I need help. Help me. Fill me with your Spirit. Strengthen me. Encourage me. Empower me. 
Give me faith to believe you and trust you. That's what he wants to hear. Do it. God doesn't appreciate weakness. He appreciates meekness, but not weakness. Okay, there's the introduction, so we'll go on for the next three hours. I got time to go at least to numbers. We were headed there earlier. If I just go for 45 minutes, you'll come to expect it. Well, we can't train you that way. Let's go to Numbers 12. There's a reason I go here. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, it is very likely that what this is saying is correct, that he had married someone of a different race, not an Israelite, and that at that time God told him not to do that. So he probably had made a mistake. In so doing, and Aaron and Miriam knew that she was not a blood Israelite. Now that isn't the same today as it was then. This is Old Testament, remember. God in the New Testament is said we're neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, black or uh, what's the other one, circumcised or uncircumcised, as far as spiritual standing is concerned. It doesn't matter. Well, does it still matter to some degree who you marry? Well, I would say so, because he says you're neither male nor female. Well, now we have some in the world today that don't know the difference. Transgenders. And it's getting to be more and more of them. So we are still male and female, and God made us on a physical level to marry male to female. That is the natural way and the right way and the only way. And we are Greek or Jew, physically speaking. Now, is it better overall in the long run if we marry someone of the same background or similar backgrounds, of similar race, of similar language, of similar everything, your chances of it working are quite a bit better the more alike you are instead of the more different you are in any level. You have challenges to face if you have somebody from a totally different culture, because they're used to thinking this way, and you're used to thinking that way, and that creates conflicts. And the, 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 the more the range of variance and difference is, the more conflict it creates. So overall, on just a physical level, the more alike you are, the easier it's going to be, and it's going to be hard regardless. Two people try to fuse together, their lives and become one, it's difficult. Because males and females are different to start with. Vive la difference. But uh, still in all, 
It's difficult for two human beings to live together in peace and love and harmony the way God intended it. There will always be areas that are difficult for us. So, just as a general principle, you marry somebody that's more like you, the easier it's going to be to get along. Just just as I think that makes sense and is logical. Now, if you go a different direct route than that, doesn't mean you can't have success. You might have to work at it a little harder. That's all. So I'm not condemning anybody that crosses a race line in marriage. Uh, it might create some problems for them because of different languages and different cultures. But you can overcome them. You know, you can be happy anyway. It's just a little more difficult sometimes, the more different you are. <clears throat> but in any case, in the Old Testament, they were only to marry Israelites and hopefully of the same tribe. That's the way God thought it would be best. And God knows. <laughs> it would be easier that way and everything would work better that way. But anyway, he apparently had made an error and done what God had said don't do. Miriam and Aaron were his sister and brother, and I think they knew. Now, I've had apologists who didn't want to admit that Moses could have made a mistake try to say that they got all kinds of this stuff. about No matter what you bring up back here about a mistake somebody made, they'll say it wasn't really that way, that there were a bunch of Israelites that lived in Ethiopia, and he married one of them, so it was okay. I don't buy that. I don't buy it at all. Aaron and Miriam would have known had that been a bunch of Israelites living in Ethiopia. And they would have known when she showed up whether she was Ethiopian or Israelite. It probably wouldn't have been too big a deal to figure that out. So they were right. He had done it, and he had done it contrary to God's Word. So that's established, okay? That's not a problem. He had done what God had said, don't do. Moses was not a perfect man. And they said, here's where the problem starts. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? After all, he's just our brother. We're just as good as he is. Is God speaking only through Moses? This is human reasoning at its finest. Has he not spoken also by us? Now, if you'll recall, back when they came across the Red Sea, Miriam had sung a song to God, thankful for deliverance, and she was even called a prophetess back there. I don't know what that meant. There's not much in the Bible to define what a prophetess was or shall be. There was Anna the prophetess in the New Testament. So she held that office. I don't know. We in the church over the years thought if you were a deacon, your wife was automatically a deaconess. If you're an elder, it didn't make your wife an elder. It made her an elder's wife uh, or whatever. Or we never had a prophet that we recognized as a prophet. And using that logic, then the wife would have been a prophetess, but I think Anna was a widow, as I recall, and she's listed as a prophetess. 
And I often said over the years, how would the church react to the first one that God designated a prophetess? Woohoo! A woman's supposed to shut up. How can she be a prophetess? And what did it mean? Well, maybe the very fact that she led Israel in a song about God's deliverance put her in that position. She wasn't to be a teacher, as the New Testament shows, or a preacher. But she did something special there. And for whatever reason, without a lot of talk about it, she's called a prophetess in Scripture. So let's establish that even she held an office in Israel, an important office apparently. And God looked favorably upon that. Now, Aaron also was in a very high office as the high priest. That's high as you can get as a human being, is the high priest. And that's what he was. But God makes a difference sometimes, and we better pay attention to God. Has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And you know what? They were right. People would say, well, no, he hadn't spoken through them. He spoke through Miriam in that song of deliverance. He spoke through Aaron as he addressed the priesthood and the people as the high priest. So, yes, God had heard them. But they were putting Moses down and trying to take on his job. They weren't meek, humble, or poor in spirit. They were presumptuous, self-willed, full of ego and vanity, thinking that God heard them just as much as he heard Moses. Now, it doesn't say God didn't hear them. God did in the offices they had, as I just said. But he had a specific use for Moses, and they had better not tread on that. Okay? Let's see. God's spoken by us. Okay, the Eternal heard it. Now he makes a statement here. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Christ told us to be meek. Moses was meek. He was a very powerful man, but he was meek. He wasn't full of vanity and ego and self. And you'll remember when God told him to go and speak to Pharaoh, he says, Oh, well, I, I can't do that. He wasn't full of vanity and says, All right, Lord, you got the right man this time. Wasn't his attitude at all. In fact, he even got in a little bit of trouble because he kept pushing it. <laughs> you know, I really am not qualified. Okay then, Moses. You're still going to do it, but Aaron can talk for you, all right? Oh. <coughs> but he was meek. He recognized his own lacks, his own faults. It doesn't say here that when they accused him of having done that, he rose up and defended himself and says, well, here's why it's okay what I did. No, God heard it, and God defended Moses. 
He didn't have to defend himself. Beautiful, huh? Well, God wanted to make sure that we understood that Moses was a meek man. And the Eternal spoke suddenly to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam. Come out, you three, into the tabernacle of the congregation. And the three came out, probably in a thundering voice, because it was suddenly. He looked at it, he heard what they said, he saw their attitude, and he was going to deal with this. So the Eternal came down on the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. So they all three came out, and then he said, you two, front and center. (laughs) I assume from that that Moses kind of stood back a little, and they came forward. Well, naturally they'd come forward. They thought they were just as good as Moses. They still had the same attitude that they had had. It was about to be dealt with, though. So the three came out, and then the two were called forward. And he said, Hear now my words. I'm going to give you a talking to, and I want you listening. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what's going on here. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Eternal, will make myself known to him in a vision, and will speak to him in a dream. Now he says, this is the way I work. If I choose a prophet, I will speak to him in visions and dreams. That's the way I do it. That's my M.O. Okay? Now that means that none of us had better take an office like that unto ourselves, God not having let us know What he intends. You better be good and sure before you try to accept or take an office or a job that that's exactly what God wants and he's let you know. Now, if you go through the prophets, you'll see that. Amos, God says, I want you to go talk to Israel. Oh, I'm just a picker of fruit. You know, I'm a fruit picker. Not me. Amos... Do it. That's pretty much his whole deal with all the prophets. He went to them, and they said, oh, wait a minute, I can't do that. And he says, do it. Oh, okay. And don't argue too much, or I'll have your brother speak for you. You know what I mean? Do what I say. But if I didn't come to you, then don't do it. See, they had decided that we're as good as you is. That's what they decided. And God hears us too. And we're just as important. And they diminished the job that God had given Moses by saying they had the same power, the same influence with God that he did. So the first thing he says is this is the way I normally do it. And I didn't speak to you in a vision or a dream. And he didn't with Aaron or Miriam. He hadn't. And then he continued, My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. Now he says, this is normally the way I do it. I'll give him a vision or a dream. But not Moses. 
He's making a point here. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the eternal shall he behold. He's not only going to hear my voice mouth to mouth, he's also going to see my form. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Not only didn't I just speak to him in vision and dream, I spoke to him mouth to mouth, and he can see me. Not in glory, but his similitude. What he was shaped like, what he looked like, if manifested as human. Met him on the plains of Mamre. Abraham fed him and the angels that were with him. He appeared to Moses more than once. So he says, he's basically saying to Miriam and Aaron, who do you think you are? Why would you do this? You've seen me work with Moses. You've seen the Red Sea part. You've seen the manna. You've seen the quail. You've seen all these things that I've done through Moses. And now you think you're just as good as he is. Didn't have anything to do with as good as because they were accusing him of being a sinner while they were righteous. That's what this is all about. You're a sinner, Moses, and God will listen to us as much as, maybe more than you, because you're a sinner. Now, that's a scary position to take. All men are sinners. And it is not for any of us to say, you're a worse sinner than I am. We're not to judge that way. But they were. God didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. He makes the judgments. He had made the judgment on who would be the prophet. It was Moses. It wasn't Aaron. And it wasn't Miriam. So he's setting them straight here. And the anger of the eternal was kindled against them, those two. He was angry at both of them. And he departed. So he said his he had his say, and he disappeared. The cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Leprosy is a disease where you just simply rot away. Your fingers turn white, the skin and the the flesh begin to deteriorate and your fingers just fall off and your feet and your legs and you die. Leprosy is a nasty business. And she was leprous. I mean, she was going to die. God had given her leprosy. And when you had leprosy, you were put outside the camp and you were kept there until you either died or got over it, which they didn't do without certain cleansing that God uh, said would have to happen. So this was a pretty strong pronouncement. Now, he did not give leprosy to Aaron. Uh, Aaron was the high priest. I think God respected that office and therefore did not come down as hard on Aaron as he did on Miriam, who was not only out of place as 
an office, but out of place as a woman who was not to be taking or usurping a man's position. So she was doubly responsible here. And she's the one that God laid this on. So Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord. Oh, he's suddenly my Lord. It's not as, I'm as good as you are anymore. It's my Lord. I beseech you, lay not the sin upon us, whereby, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Aaron's repenting here. Aaron's changing his attitude. He's showing respect to Moses and asking Moses not to hold this to his account, but to forgive him. Totally different attitude. There's some meekness. There's some humility. There's some throwing aside of his ego and his vanity and what he had puffed himself up to be. And now he's being humble. Isn't that what God's looking for? He was upset because Miriam and Aaron were proud and vain and self-centered and thought of themselves more highly than they ought to have thought. So he humbled them through words and through leprosy. And it was his sister standing there leprous. And leprosy is very, very contagious as well. So if Miriam had it and he was with her, he could have contracted it very easily, just by the normal sequence. So he changed his attitude. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. She was bad enough that he could see she was already half dead. Well, here's Moses who didn't say, I told you so. Don't you realize I am so much more important to God than you are? That wouldn't be meekness. That would be vanity and ego on Moses' part. But he didn't react that way. When Aaron showed some meekness and some repentance, he asked for forgiveness. And what did Moses say? Moses cried to the Eternal, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech you. Moses loved his brother, and Moses loved his sister. And if they showed a repentant attitude, he was not going to hold it against them. He would forgive them, and they'd move on. No hard feelings, no grudges. No, you sinned against me, and I'm going to hate you forever business. I'll never forgive you. No, none of that. As soon as they changed their attitude... Moses was ready to forgive, not only forgive, but ask God to heal her. And God cried for that. And the Eternal said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, she should be ashamed seven days. I mean, leprosy is a lot worse than you stay out until you get over it or die. But this was not a minor infraction that Miriam and Aaron had committed. Presumption is as witchcraft. That's what God says. When we presume an office that we do not have, or we put down an office that God has ordained, that's presumption. And God said it's the same as being a witch. If you presume something like this, he's saying you're just like Hillary to put it in modern terms. She's a fourth-degree witch. 
Hillary Clinton. So God puts you in the same category as Hillary if you are presumptuous and you talk about someone whom God has put in office. That's scary business. What is God going to do with witches? We better be careful what we say. If her father had just spit in her face, she had had to been out of the camp seven days. Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received in again. So she was shut out seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. They stayed right there. And then they moved on. What did God do? God saw repentance in Miriam and Aaron, and that they realized they'd made a mistake and had sinned by speaking against Moses. So instead of letting her stay out of the camp and die, God gave her a very light sentence. Just stay out seven days. Same as if your dad had spit in your face. Now, why wasn't dad put out? for seven days for spitting in his daughter's face. No. The daughter obviously had done something that made her dad despise her or look down on her, and spitting in someone's face is a true insult. That was one of the things that Christ said that they would do to him, was spit in his face. And they did when he was hanging there. So when somebody spits in your face, that is a big offense. So I don't know what the daughter might have done, but if the father spit in her face, she had to stay out of the camp for seven days. And that is the strongest punishment then that God left on her. He struck her with leprosy until she repented and changed her attitude. Then he gave her a very mild sentence. There's the mercy and the love and the kindness of God. But they had committed a high-level sin against God. And God said, No, Moses isn't your run-of-the-mill prophet. I speak to him face to face. Now, you're way out of line here. And they got the point. Moses was the meekest man on earth. And Aaron and Miriam were not showing meekness. They were showing vanity and ego and selfishness and pride, which is the opposite of meekness. They were the opposite of Moses at that point. So then when they decided, we will be meek and poor in spirit and repent and ask for forgiveness, that's what God was looking for. End of the story. When God says... You're full of vanity and ego and self-righteousness. And I spew you out of my mouth. And we repent and become meek and poor in spirit and seek him with all our heart. He'll say, that's what I was looking for. You're forgiven. I'll turn my face back to you. And I've always loved you, but I'll show my love now. Wow. Let's go where Miriam and Aaron went at the end. We're in the same position they were in in Revelation 3. Aaron and Miriam are us. Now let's do what they did and get forgiven 
and accepted of God and have him smile on us again. The meek will inherit the earth. 